I stand before you this afternoon occupying the sacred tradition once held by godly Levites and other ministers of the word, wherein they fulfilled their calling to express, to exegete, and to expound God's word. We are ministers of God called to read from the word of God, to take it out of its press, out of its printed condition, and to read it out to you to give you the sense of what the scriptures that we're investigating are all about, and then to expound and make application to our lives and help God's servants to understand what these texts mean. Remember with me that when it comes to the ministry of the Bible, what we're dealing with is a supernatural text. We're dealing with a text that... Paul tells us, is expired of God. It was breathed out by God, and as such, it has the profit, it has the potential, it has the life principle that comes from the being of God, resident within it. And really, even with the reading of God's Word, if we read the Word of God distinctly, even the reading of the Word of God should be an experience of edification to your hearts, but all the more so when it is the case that that is followed up by an anointed exposition of the passages and then an expounding of how that would apply to your life. I say those opening remarks as a way of encouragement to all of you who are gathered in this place today because the possibility of each one of you growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is as real as the things that I just described. And this afternoon, we want to take up a particular topic that I hope you will find accessible to your understanding. We desire to speak on this matter with clarity and distinction in the interest of making sure that every heart is ministered to and that we are grounding you in some of the basic principles of the Word of God that will bless your life now and sustain you in time to come. The title of our investigation today, and this will occupy this assembly's ministry for some weeks to come, is the King of Glory the King of glory. I draw you initially to a scene in the heavens that was experienced by Isaiah. It's well known and it's found in Isaiah chapter 6. It is speaking about Isaiah's call into the ministry and it reads as follows. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Now, what's interesting about this vision that Isaiah experienced is that within the context of the seraphim in the heavenly location wherein all of this occurred, the statement of the angels is absolutely true and powerful and real. The sense of God's holiness, the sense of his glory filled the entire temple of the heavenly precincts. Indeed, we're told that his train filled the temple. The myriad attendants of Almighty God and the sense of his awesomeness filled the temple. But while this was powerfully true in the heavenlies, it was not fully manifest on the earth. And therefore, we see as it relates to us, there is a promise that is embedded into this vision that speaks of a time to come when it will be fully true that the whole earth is full of God's glory. And now one of the reasons why that contrast is very real and palpable, certainly to Isaiah and can be to ourselves as well, is because of what was in fact going on down in the earth when this vision took place. It took place in the year that Uzziah died. On earth, the king of Israel just died. And this king of Israel did not die in a condition of good fellowship with Almighty God. We're told in this vision that God's glory filled the temple. So where God was, there was holiness and only holiness that was present within the heavenly precincts. But we know as it relates to King Uzziah, the 10th king of the southern tribe, that his story includes certainly an initial experience of God's support, an initial manifestation of the glory of God through this king of Israel while he was walking in fellowship with his Lord and he saw great success in battle. But on the earth, pride began to rise up in the heart of this man. And he went into the earthly temple. And he sought to usurp the priest's ministry. And so what we had happening in the temple on the earth was not the picture of holy, 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 holiness. What we had was fleshly manifestations, carnal conflict and confusion within the temple precincts. There was a king that effectively was challenging the lordship of Almighty God. When the high priest Azariah, along with 80 other sacred servants of the Lord in the temple precincts, opposed this man King Uzziah, you'll remember with me that he got mad. He resisted their counsel. And as a consequence, he became leprous. Uncleanness entered into the earthly temple. It could not be stated that the whole earth was filled with God's glory because if for nothing else, a particular man, a man who was called to serve God, a man who himself was in the position of a king, he had brought unholiness into the temple of God and God opposed him and he was thrust out of the earthly temple. 
And so, dear brethren, I bring this tension that is present in Isaiah chapter 6, that we still contextually are living within, where the promise is that the whole earth will be filled with God's glory, but as it is experienced on earth here, that is not fully true. Nonetheless, it is very important that we appreciate what God was revealing to his servant Isaiah. And I encourage you to set your eyes upon the vision that was granted to Isaiah and to take in the revelation that is the sight of the seraphim and the cherubim and to see the Lord's holiness, to see the King of glory, to see by faith in your heart and in your mind and to learn about the reality of the King of glory. Though it is the case that it isn't fully manifest on this earth, though it is the case that the temples of time in the earth, whether they be the Solomonic temple, or as it is the case presently, we might say the churches of Jesus Christ, we might even say our own persons and our own bodies, they who confess the Lord Jesus, though it is not the case that all churches are filled with the glory of God, all confessing Christians are filled with the glory of God, I want nonetheless to encourage you to take in that vision that Isaiah was caught up to see and set your sights on the King of glory and allow that to be a truth for your heart that'll help you to continue to live out your calling faithfully. Now I want to bring you to the text that will make up the heart of this study, and that is Psalm 24. Rather than read the 10 verses of this psalm, I will begin to help all of us penetrate its insights to remove the veil from our understandings so that we can perceive what the Spirit's inspired message is to us. I'll begin to seek to accomplish this by presenting to you an outline of this psalm. And I will do so by giving you a series of categorizations of the three primary sections that make up this psalm. There are indeed three primary sections to Psalm 24. The first section is made up of two verses. The second section is made up of four verses. And the third section is also made up of four verses altogether, equaling the 10 verses of Psalm 24. Now, dear brothers and sisters, before I begin to bring to you the outline of this psalm, this revelation from God, this anointed portion of Scripture. Let me state to you that what you're going to discover is in a similar way to Isaiah chapter 6, Psalm 24 presents to us a sweeping survey of salvation history. You see, Isaiah chapter 6 lifts Isaiah out of the context of the earth, out of temporality, out of time, out of history, and into heaven, and shows him that the whole earth shall be filled with God's glory. 
while also manifesting that presently there is conflict in the temple, there is need for men to be consecrated and sanctified, and so the full plan of God has not been accomplished, but we know where it is going, and it's a beautiful truth to perceive as an encouragement to our journey as we seek to follow on to know the Lord. And Psalm 24 can further illumine your understanding about what the King of Glory wants you to see. And so we'll enter into the outline of Psalm 24. I have seven different ways of expressing what these sections are about, and I will give them to you one at a time. Verses 1 and 2 present to us a categorical declaration. Verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Do you hear that categorical declaration? The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Every square inch of it belongs to God. About every aspect of the universe, Yahweh says, it is mine. And so verses 1 and 2 can be expressed as a categorical declaration. Verses 3 through 6 is our second section, and it expresses a conditional invitation. A conditional invitation. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Do you hear the invitation? And do you sense that it is conditioned? Or who shall stand in his holy place? While the earth belongs to the Lord in the fullness thereof, and that is categorically true, yet for some reason which we will investigate and seek to help all of us to understand the story of the Bible and the story of salvation. For some reason, not everyone can be in the Lord's presence and in the Lord's temple. Recall with me Isaiah chapter 6 as a reference point for this vision that Psalm 24 presents to us. The angels say that the whole earth is full of God's glory. That is categorically true. The earth belongs to God. And yet for certain reasons, it was nonetheless the case that there was a conflict in the temple and there was a debate about who can be on the hill of Zion in God's presence and who must be rejected from the present experience of fellowship with Almighty God. So while the earth belongs to the Lord, it is not the case that everyone enjoys the communion and direct care and work of Almighty God. It is conditioned. And we read about these conditions in verse 4. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. What happened to Uzziah? He was made leprous because he put forth his hands in a sinful manner. And when he became leprous, he was then thrust out of God's temple and, as it were, forced to descend and go out of the experience of what the temple is all about in this process 
of bringing the earth to a place where it is filled with God's glory. Uzziah is out of that program at this point, brothers and sisters. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul onto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. So it seems that while the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, yet nonetheless, humanity is in need of God's blessing. Humanity is in need of God, as it were, finding each one of us, or we might state it differently, that we are in need of being in the place where we can receive the blessing of the one who owns the entire earth. It does not come automatically. He shall receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face. And I believe we should read the text in the following manner. You could read it as, O God of Jacob, or you could read it as, as did Jacob. Recall with me that one of the famous incidents in Jacob's life is that he sought the face of God at Peniel, a location that bears the name of the face of God. And Jacob sought God and wrestled to understand and fellowship with his God. That's found in Genesis 32. This is the generation of those that, like Jacob, are zealous and determined to receive the blessing from the Lord. Oh, Lord, bless me. I won't let you go until you bless me. And somehow this is related to the entire earth being filled with God's glory, though it is categorically true that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We see, like in Isaiah 6, there's a tension and a conflict between what is promised, what was possible, what is presently the case, and where this salvation story is going. And so the third section of Psalm 24 is verses 7 through 10, and it speaks of kingdom exaltation. And here you are seeing by prophetic promise an eschatological event that is remarkable in the way in which it's presented because the conditional invitation that is given in the second section, verses 3 through 6, speak of access to God's presence as something that we need to approach and we need to meet the conditions and be welcomed into the temple. You understand how that is working. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in the holy place? It's the picture of we do not have access automatically to the temple dwellings within which we are with God. And we must meet conditions in order to arrive there. But when we come to the third section and kingdom exaltation, very remarkably it's presented in language that has Almighty God himself approaching the place of his enthronement. And there's a sense in which access has to be made right for God 
to arrive at that exalted place. Well, look at the language of the psalm. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. There are gates and there are doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Evidently, some conflict must have been a part of the salvation story that required the God who created and then came to a rest to then become the warrior king and take up a battle by which ultimately he would prevail and his kingdom would be established. And there's a sense in which he would be welcomed to the place of exaltation. So there's a sense in which the way that the earth is filled with God's glory in the mercy of God is not accomplished by God simply forcing his glory into the earth, but he has battled, as it were, in such a way so as to achieve an access to the hearts of his creation so that he can be welcomed into his position of exaltation so that the whole earth can be filled with his glory. I continue to read from the text. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the seraphim. He's the Lord of the cherubim. He's the Lord of the 24 elders. He's the Lord of all creation. He is the King of glory. The entire earth belongs to Him. But what you're seeing in this third section, which we're entitling Kingdom Exaltation, is that after we learn about the categorical declaration, and then we see the place and relevance of the conditional invitation, it leads us to the enthronement, to the establishment of God himself in his kingdom. And I assure you that at this point, the entire earth will be filled with God's glory. Now I want to explain these verses with some other titles. Always we will be dividing Psalm 24 into the same sections. But each one of these descriptions that I will give you will help you to begin to pass through the veil that is otherwise over the Word of God, and you can see more distinctly what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us. Verses 1 and 2 is the Genesis account. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I won't necessarily read all the verses as we go forward in looking at other ways of describing these sections. You can always glance at the text yourself in your own Bibles. But another way of expressing the first section is it is the Genesis account. I stated before that Psalm 24 is a sweeping survey of salvation history. Verses 3 through 6 is the temple account. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in God's holy place? Think of this with me, that there was a Genesis account within which God created and everything was very good. And initially there was perfect fellowship between God and man. But the Bible moves forward and has a temple account. 
And we know that the temple occupies only a very small area within the entire earth. And we know that the entire earth is no longer filled with God's glory. In the creation account, when everything was very good, and before the entrance of sin, the earth was filled with God's glory. But now we have the temple account, where there is restricted access to the presence and the blessing of God. Remember the language of verse 5 of this psalm. The one who can be in the temple, the one participating in the temple account, receives the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Those outside of the temple, those who cannot ascend the hill of the Lord, they are not within the glory and the blessing of God in this heightened sense. And then thirdly, verses 7 through 10 give to us the kingdom account. And there is a good deal of language in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that promises, as Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 does, that ultimately the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. So I hope you see the sweeping nature of the revelation here in Psalm 24. You have creation, and then you have consecration, and then you have coronation. Let me explain this to you another way, and we'll begin to weave these ideas together. In the first section, which we can call the Genesis account, the creation account, what we have there is God functioning as the great creator. And what we also have there is the created temple. God dwelled with man, God dwelled with men on the earth in the Holy of Holies known as Eden, known in a place that we can call paradise. God dwelled with man and there was glorious fellowship and the earth at that moment was expressing God's glory. But we come to the second section, and now we're in the realm of a conditional invitation. Man does not have access to God freely. Now things are conditioned, and you have to first pass a test before you can be with God. It is asked for everyone who wants to be with the Lord. Can you meet these conditions? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? You have to ask that as it were yourself. If you want to be in God's presence, you have to ask they who protect entrance to God, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can be in fellowship with God? Who can receive the blessing of the Lord? And this is the phase of our consecration. This is the phase of God's condescension. He condescends to yet make a way for sinful man to participate with him in the ultimate objective of the entire earth being filled with God's glory. And in this phase, we move from the created temple, which God made, as it were, with his own hands. He planted the garden east of Eden. There was a temple within which fellowship was experienced. We move now to the constructed temple. Why must there be a constructed temple? Because the earth is not filled with God's glory. Because like Uzziah, Eve and Adam rose in pride and they sinned against God. 
and were thrust out of his temple. They became leprous with sin. And the vice-regent, as it were, the delegated human who would have authority in the earth and should utilize that authority to mediate the glory of God to his fellow creatures over time should had things gone well. The king Adam, as it were, is thrust out of the garden with the leprosy of sin. And yet I ask you, did it change at that moment in the heavens themselves where the seraphim and the cherubim are? And they didn't begin to say that in Isaiah chapter 6. You understand? They eternally say, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. And yet presently it's being contested. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what you're learning is salvation history as we're studying this text together. And so I'm saying to you that now the place where you can meet with God has to be constructed on the earth because otherwise there's no place within which true worship can be experienced. And the project of God can be brought about in your life to sanctify you and purify you so that you can be a participant in his kingdom ultimately. And so in this phase, the great creator condescends to be toward us as the great redeemer. And then in this third section, the great creator, who in the second section functions as the great redeemer within the limited temple experience of his presence, and that can be in the churches of Jesus Christ, that can be in your own spirit and heart under new covenant Christianity. He now, as we read in 7 through 10, I hope you can see it with me, now he is indeed the great king. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, mighty in battle, victorious in salvation history. And the gates are opened and the king of glory enters and is, in, and is enthroned. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. This is an eschatological promise. As it relates to the temple, Recall with me, one of the ways of describing these sections uses the motif of temple. We have the created temple, then we have the constructed temple in the second section. Now we have, as a matter of fact, not a temple as such in the sense that you might think of Eden once upon a time, or you might think of Solomon's temple or the churches of Jesus Christ or the body of the believers, all of those are proper places within which we presently are experiencing fellowship in the work of the glory of God to prepare us for the final manifestation of the kingdom account. And what that brings us to is what I think we can call royal presence, as opposed to speaking about some temple configuration, we can speak about royal presence. Now I say that because the scriptures tell us that in this final stage, when the great king is enthroned and it is manifest, what the seraphim see, as it were, already fully and powerfully true in the heavens, and they know that this is where history is heading. They know that the time is coming. What they know is that in that final state, the Bible tells us in Revelation 21 and verse 22, John says, I saw no temple therein. 
For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And so I wish to express these verses yet again with another set of designations and ideas to help you to understand the program of God's Word. And I also hope that you find encouragement in your life in your present pilgrimage. The first section, which we have called the Genesis account, which we have called creation, which we have stated is where the great creator is manifest, where the created temple is present. Another way of thinking about this is by using the biblical theological theme of the Holy of Holies. And I've already alluded to, alluded to this, but I want to enlarge upon it just a bit. In the first section, the Genesis account of creation, where God is manifesting himself as the great creator, what occurs there is that the Garden of Eden functions as the Holy of Holies on the earth. Now that is of great significance. There's a sense in which if Adam and Eve had understood that, and perhaps they did to some extent, I don't know. It's possible that they did. That they understood this, that while it was the case that the earth was very good, that is plainly stated, creation was not infused with evil. Nonetheless, just like in the temple that is constructed later, so use your understanding of that to help you to understand the Genesis account, there was a holy of holies on the earth. There was a garden of perfection or nigh on to perfection. It did, after all, have the possibility of sin that was theoretically able to manifest within it, did it not? For the serpent entered it, and within it, Adam and Eve sinned, taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But there was a holy of holies, which was of the highest order, presently of communion with God. It was the spot where the glory of the Lord was most powerfully manifest, and the responsibility that was given to Adam and Eve what their ministry and calling entailed was that they were to expand the Holy of Holies and the same arrangement throughout the entire earth. They were to, as it were, take dominion over the earth. In other words, they had a project in front of them in which they were to see to it that this highest, most powerful manifestation of God's glory was expanded from the Holy of Holies, you might say into the holy place, and then into the outer court, and ultimately to fill the whole earth with God's glory. And so we have the Holy of Holies in the Genesis account, the first two verses, but without expansion. Humanity was called to the task of expanding the glory of God throughout all the earth. But at that moment, that is to say in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the expansion project is not strongly underway and it's interrupted by the entrance of sin. It's interrupted by rebellion within the temple and the challenge of the great creator 
who indeed always is the king of glory. But he manifests himself, as I'm stating initially, as the great creator with a divine plan to fill the earth with his glory. But that divine plan, as I'm stating, was set off the rails through sin. Well, I shouldn't say it was set off the rails. I mean, it was in a certain real sense. Sin is a very real disruption. It brings chaos into creation and it therefore, as it were, requires that the great creator become the great redeemer if humanity is going to participate in the king of glory's kingdom wherein the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. So in the second section, dear brothers and sisters, as I've stated before, we have here the constructed temple. Remember with me as you're thinking about this, you're already realizing that the prospect of the entire earth being filled with God's glory has been rudely interrupted. It has been constricted at this point in Israel's history down to a single structure on the top of Mount Zion that includes a spot that is cubical, known as the Holy of Holies. And no one is to enter into that except with the blood or a blood sacrifice, let's say, for the moment. What are we learning here? We're learning, as I've been expressing to you, that the creation stage of verse 1 and 2 has now, having been interrupted, that now we have to talk about a consecration stage. Another way of stating this, allow me to give you three ideas as we weave these thoughts together. Another way of stating this is in verses 1 and 2, we have creation. In verses 3 through 6, we have confusion. And then in verses 7 through 10, we have consummation or the ultimate goal. I trust you see that with me. Verses 1 and 2 say the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That speaks of creation. But when we get to verse 3 through 6, and we see that though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the great king made all of this, nonetheless, access to this great king is somehow restricted. And we understand that happened because of the entrance of sin. And yet the original objective of God, the ultimate goal, the consummation is still going to take place, though we have in the middle of it a state of confusion that we are presently still within. Now, dear friends, as I'm ministering in a church, which is a place of meeting this great king who will reign and rule and the entire earth will be filled with his glory. The time is coming when angels and men will fellowship together and the seraphim and the cherubim will be visually seen and known and God's train will not just fill the heavens, but will fill the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And dear brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you that presently as I preach, you are being granted the privilege of understanding the sweeping story of salvation. And we're explaining to you why the nature of your experience now 
involves confusion, involves chaos, involves the need of salvation. But we're also saying through this study, initially as we just look at the outlining of this text, we're encouraging your hearts through the title, which is the King of Glory, that the warrior king, who is the captain of our salvation, he will prevail over this chaos, and he ultimately will fill the earth with his glory, and his intention is to bring many sons and daughters into the experience of his kingdom, to bring them into his kingdom. But you cannot just be born on this earth, though you are nonetheless the creature of God, and the entire universe belongs to him. But it is no longer the case that just simply being a creature of God means that you will be an occupant in his kingdom because confusion has entered into the project and the experience of being redeemed out of that confusion has been greatly restricted and it's restricted in the language of the Bible to this concept of the temple, constructed temples as it were within human experience in Israel's day, it was centered on Mount Zion. And I'm saying to you that there was a holy of holies. And the question was, someone at the foot of Zion would say, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter into salvation? Who can come into fellowship with God so as to be consecrated and cleansed in order to be prepared to be a part of his kingdom? For at some moment, the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory. At some moment, the language is going to be said, lift up your heads, all ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting arms. The king of glory is coming into human experience. Who is this king of glory? He is the victorious redeemer, the Lord strong and mighty. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. And he's taken the hearts of the rebels and he's turned them into hearts of flesh that now are in fellowship with him. Lift up your heads, all ye gates. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of everything. He's the Lord presently of the seraphim and the cherubim and the angels. I believe there are angels in this place. I believe, brothers and sisters, that there are minds and beings that fully worship Almighty God presently and they know of his glorious nature. And they live within the experience of the fullness of his glory. But presently, we live in the circumstance. Each one of us feel the limitations within ourselves. And I think it is all too often the case that even in the temple locations, this being one of them. And then I would secondly say, you also individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. You are locations within which communion with God and the reality of his glory can fill your life and your mind and your experience and order and righteousness and blessing can be experienced. But I started to say that I think it is often the case that even in temple locations like Isaiah 
confronted in his own life in knowing about what Uzziah had done. And he had to be lifted up to heaven to see the vision of the glory of God having its full weight in expression because down on the earth, even in the locations where the great redeemer was seeking to put this thing back together there was too much sin and too much chaos too much pride too much resistance against the king of glory too little worship too little appreciation for what is coming that the king of glory is coming there are too many gates and too many heads that are resisting the king of glory dear brothers and sisters even in the temple locations. But Psalm 24 shows us this sweeping story of salvation, my dear brothers and sisters, where the creation that is presently in a state of confusion is going to ultimately reach its consummation, within which the holy of holies will have maximal expansion. The entire earth is going to be filled with God's glory. There will be no need for a temple with divisions even within the temple arrangement where you have the holy of holies and the holy place and the outer court and we might even say the Gentile court and the place for the women and all of these different ideas. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm saying that the future is the king of glory filling the entire earth. And that is where the blessing, that is where righteousness and happiness will be experienced. This is what salvation is all about, dear brothers and sisters. It's about recognizing that God the Creator and your relationship with Him is not enough to bring you into the kingdom of the great King. You need to know Him as God the Redeemer the warrior king who conquers the sin in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are consecrated presently within the constricted experiences of fellowship with God in a church like this. In your own life, you should be cultivating communion with God and a sense of His glory within which as you grapple with that, the question will be constantly being asked of you. Can you ascend this hill of the Lord? Can you come to God's holy place? You need to clean your hands and purify your heart. You need to cease lifting up your soul to idolatry and vanity. You need to watch your tongue and not swear deceitfully. For there alone and for those alone is the blessing of the Lord experienced and the righteousness which he will give the God of salvation. This is the generation of those who are preparing their hearts to be before the face of God. This is the generation that can say, even now, I lift up my head, I lift up the bars of my heart, and I say, King of glory, come in. King of glory, prevail over my will. King of glory, prevail over my lusts. King of glory, prevail over the flesh and the devil and the world and conquer my life and conquer my heart. For I know that the entire earth is going to be filled with God's glory. The King of glory is coming.